0: My guest today is Professor Sleeman Bensmaya, who is a professor of organismal biology and anatomy at the University of Chicago. His research focuses on how nervous systems give rise to flexible, intelligent behavior, especially sensory processing. That is, how, um, how our robust and flexible neuronal representations of the environment constructed to support behavior? Welcome, Sleeman. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to use one of your older papers to set the context, and uh, we, can, we can talk about it more uh, big picture uh, view, uh, but the paper is intracortical microstimulation of human somatosensory cortex. Uh, you said touch is essential for hand use, yet brain controlled prosthetic limbs have not been endured with this critical sense. So in this study, microelectrode arrays were implanted into the primary somatosensory cortex of a person with spinal cord injury, and by delivering current through the electrode-generated sensations of touch that were perceived as coming from his own paralyzed hand. Um, So these are people with spinal cord injuries, and um, you are connecting these electrodes directly to the brain in this case, or what's happening here? Yes, I mean, maybe take a, a,
1: one, a quick step backwards and, and think about what, you know, why are we doing this before we talk about exactly what we're doing, right? So, sure. I mean, the idea is, you know, anytime we interact with objects, here's my phone, right? We get, you know, we, we're sending all these, these, these signals to our muscles to move our hands, but we're getting, you know, this barrage of sensory signals back from our hands to tell us about the object. so I know the shape and size of this thing that I'm holding, where the, you know, the, its edges are, And that, you know, those sensory signals are critical to supporting our, our interactions with objects. And if we lose those sensory signals, even with an intact motor system and muscles and everything, we, you know, lose our ability to really interact, you know, uh, effectively with objects. So that's sort of the, the premise of this work. And so now we're, you know, we're working with different people who have lost, you know, their, their hand use, right, either because they've lost their hands or because, they, they suffered a spinal cord injury and you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the connection between the, the, the nervous system or the central nervous system and the hand has been compromised. And so for, for these subjects, and now as I think people have been exposed to this, there, um, there, is, um, there have been developed these bionic hands, right? So these bionic hands can either be controlled via residual muscles, you know the muscles of the arm, you know, most of the, 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 the muscles that control their hand are actually in the forearm. So you can use signals from these muscles to actually uh, control this this um, this bionic hand for amputees. And in the case of, of spinal cord injury patients, you know, that tetraplegic patients who are um, um, uh, paralyzed and insensate from the neck down, you can use signals from the motor parts of the brain right, to control it, right? So now what what, what we work on is to restore the sensory feedback. And so for amputees, we can restore the sensory feedback by electrically stimulating the, the residual nerves that used to, to, uh, to um, innervate the hand. And for um, uh, tetraplegics, that, that nerve is no longer attached to the brain. So, there we actually stimulate directly the, the, the parts of the brain that receive these sensory signals. And the paper that you're talking about there, Intracortical Microstimulation of Human's Metasensory Cortex, is the first study showing. So we had done studies prior to that with monkeys, showing that with monkeys, you could evoke tactile sensations by electrically stimulating the somatosensory cortex. So again, somatosensory cortex is the part of the brain that receives the the part of the cerebral cortex that receives these touch signals from the body, right? So anytime you feel something, there's a little activation in somatosensory cortex and if you electrically stimulate, and what we show in this paper is if, if, if is if you electrically stimulate this mass sensory cortex, you can evoke these very vivid touch sensations. And and what was cool is we knew we could invoke, invoke some touch sensations from monkey one. But this was the first time where we showed, you know, where we could ask a human, what does that feel like? You know, and this and the human said, Well, that actually feels like pretty pretty natural touch. You know, it's, it's like the type of sensation that I might experience uh, if I interacted with an object.
0: So so uh, for a normal person, when we move our arms, move our hand, there is some sort of an electric, electrical signal traveling to the brain through the spinal cord. That's right. And um, I guess when you have an intention to move your hand, there is some sort of a signal coming back to the muscles to actually make that happen, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of for a person that is um, that is a spinal cord injury, that connection is now lost. Brain is okay, hand is okay. I would imagine. Yes. Uh, able to create the signals, but the signals cannot travel to the brain, nor can the brain instruct the hand to move. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so what you're proving in the paper is that if you stimulate the hand in this case, well,
1: you're um, stimulating the brain.
0: stimulate the brain okay and and how do you do that
1: well so in this case you know there are different approaches but there's only one that's actually approved for human use and that is um, these arrays of electrodes um developed or or or, um, manufactured by blackrock um, blackrock microsystems i think they're called um and they're they're arrays of electrodes they're like four four millimeters by four millimeters so very small and the electrodes themselves are about 1 to 1.5 millimeters, depending on which one you, you use. And there's 100 electrodes over this, this 4 by 4 millimeter array. And you just punch this array into the, this, the sensory parts of the brain or the motor parts. It's, you use the same arrays for the motor, you know, reading out motor signals or uh, electrically stimulating, you know, the somatosensory cortex. And then, you, you know, so you, it, it, this involves... Doing a small craniotomy, or a fairly large craniotomy, actually putting these two arrays in and then putting the skull back, and somehow that you know it does not damage the brain, and you can you can record signals for for many years.
0: Using but how will the how will those signals travel back to the muscles though? Since the commission- well, so, right, so
1: here, right, so that's a great question. We're not we the, the the stuff that we do involves not restoring. Uh, uh, movements of the 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 native hand it involves controlling a robotic hand so here what we're doing is we're reading out signals from the motor parts of the brain that are essentially intact right and then you know and then there are sensors on this robot uh, and then using these signals to move and control this robotic hand this robotic arm and hand and then there are sensors on the hand and we take the output of these sensors and and to drive the electrical stimulation of somatosensory cortex right and so so this is all robotics now there's a different path a very challenging path which is to then use these brain signals to electrically stimulate the muscles to reanimate the hand right and that's a different strategy and you know and that's a great strategy except it's hard enough (laughs) to infer you know intended movements from the, the the this part of the brain and then to restore touch with a robot you know that's that's pretty hard and now if you if you want to reanimate the muscles that's even harder right so so i think we're kind of a step toward that
0: so um so so that is when you have the the spinal cord injury suppose you don't have a spinal cord injury but you actually lost the hand let's say right Mm -hmm. so you have a bionic uh hand put in that position yes and mm-hmm. uh, presumably it can generate some electrical signals um, mechanically or, or some some uh, artificial uh, ways and then uh, send that to the brain uh, in that case and then right. get some so, connection back
1: yes yeah, so the, the the so the strategy that is has been that that has been um, uh, adopted for amputees is one where you just don't go you don't interface with the brain you interface with the nerves and the muscles, right? So again, you know, if you move your hand, there's a pattern of of muscle activation in your forearm. And so an amputee, the hand is no longer there, but they can still produce these patterns of activation in the muscles, right? To the extent that these muscles are are still there. And so what you can do is put sensors on the forearm to read out what the, the amputee is trying to do and then make the robot do that, right? And, and what we do, and to, to to restore the sense of touch, well, there's a nerve, you know, that comes from, from the spinal cord and innervates the hand. Well, that nerve is fine. And so what we do is put little electrodes, chronically implanted electrodes in the nerve, and then you electrically stimulate the nerve and poof, it's like you get these sensations that, that, that are very vivid sensations coming from the hand that is no longer there.
0: Hmm. So, I don't know much about this, uh, Sliman. So, if the let's say there's an intent in the brain to move the hand, it is sending some signals uh, through that nerve, mm-hmm. uh, but it cannot reach the hand because there is no real hand there, but there is a bionic hand, right? So, could you collect those signals and then transform that into a mechanical motion by using some sort of an algorithm?
1: Absolutely. That's one approach.
0: You no, know, I mean, you could
1: completely, you know, in principle, you could put electrodes and read out intended movements from the nerve. And in fact, people do that to some, some, some extent, right? But to the extent that you still have these muscles there, these muscles are amplifiers for these neural signals coming from the brain. And so it's much easier to read out these signals from the muscles than it is from the nerve. But in, in really what you're doing is reading out the signals from the nerve through the muscles, right? but i mean that it's you know conceptually it's it's the same idea it's just uh in terms of you know implement in implementation is easier you know it's just you know muscles make these huge much stronger signals than nerve fibers you know nerve fibers make signals on the order of hundreds of, you know of microvolts uh whereas you know muscles are much much stronger uh, electrical signals so
0: um So I want to go back to the the spinal cord injury part. So you have electrodes going into the brain. You're stimulating the brain to to some level. And so what what happens then? Uh, I guess I didn't quite pick up. So so let's say you're stimulating it artificially, uh, Mm -hmm. some brain areas, the motor parts of the brain. And and then what happens? Well, actually, you're, you're, you're stimulating the
1: sensory parts of the brain. The sensory parts. You're reading out signals from the motor parts of the brain, and then you're pumping signals back into the sensory parts. So, you know, here's a, here's a um, sort of um, a crash course into, you know, sensory neuroprosthetics, right? So as most people know, at least everyone in neuroscience knows, right? There is a, you have a map of your body and your brain, right? It's called a semi-sensory homunculus. So there's a part right here that, that responds to the, to the hand and another part here that responds to the face and there's a part here that responds to the trunk. And so, you know, every part of the body to every part of the body there corresponds a part of the brain that that really kind of represents that part or that that um, that responds when when that part of the body is 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 touched and gives rise to a sensation uh um, that's appropriate to whatever part of the body right so if you know if you if i touch your hand you know you feel something on your hand right that's because there's a specific part of your brain that was activated so what we had shown already with monkey experiments but what this you know the study that you mentioned earlier um in science translational medicine really showed in a human is that if you you know if you put this array in the hand so the part of the 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 the, the somatosensory cortex that receives input from the hand that received input from the hand before the spinal cord injury let, let's say you and you stimulate an electrode that used to li- to respond to the index finger i mean like a you know you 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 electrically activate a part of the brain that used to respond to the index finger before the spinal cord injury, you give rise to a sensation on the, spinal, uh, on the index finger, right? And then if you stimulate a, uh, you know, a, through an electrode and, and activate neurons that used to respond to the thumb, you give, a, a give rise to a sensation on the thumb. So now what you can do is you can connect the sensor on, on the prosthetic hand, the thumb sensor on the prosthetic hand, to the thumb part of the brain, the, the, the index sensor to the index part of the brain and now every time the the the, 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 the subject touches something w- with the thumb and index fingers on a prosthesis you electrically stimulate the thumb and index finger representations of the brain and you you, you give rise to a sensation as though the the, the thumb and, and index finger touch something right so and and what you know a more recent paper that came out um, I was not a co-author on it but the my colleagues at University of Pittsburgh were, showed that when you do this, subjects become much better at, at in, you know, interacting with objects and, and, and grasping and transporting objects. Right. So that study that we did together was a study that showed, here are this, here's this, this, the perceptual experience of electrical stimulation of this part of the brain, somatosensory cortex, and then this new study shows that if you, if you, you know, do what I just described, connecting sensor on the prosthesis to these sensory representations of the brain, people become much better at using these bionic hands. So that's a very promising first step.
0: Yeah, so touch is a touch is a really important thing, um, and it's a very complex thing, uh, I would imagine. Right. So, um, so this idea that we can sort of do that electronically. Now, I was. The, the the problem here is the complexity in the wiring, right? <laughs> I used to be an engineer, Slim, and you look at automobiles and uh, and aircrafts, and you can see how bad the wiring is in those things. You know, uh, engineers do a bad job in industrial design sometimes, uh, but nature seems to have done a pretty bad job here too, right? It, it is the wiring is really complex, so as to um, disallow replication at <laughs> some. Days. Well, you know, I mean,
1: I would. I would disagree with that statement that nature has done a very bad job (laughs) because, you know, with all due respect to your engineering friends, um, the brain is the most complex system in the known universe and is capable of, you know, flexible, intelligent behavior in a way that no artificial device can. You know, you can take the best robots, you know, the best robots in the world can't even come close to doing what brains can do. You know, they can be specialists at chess or specialists that, you know, I just saw the, the Boston Dynamics robots can do parkour. That's amazing, right? But, the, you know, doing all the things that human brains can do, and, but you take a robot and you put it in a novel environment that it wasn't trained for, and that robot is gonna break down catastrophically. Whereas you take a, a rodent and put it in that in that environment and the rodent is gonna do some stuff. It's gonna try to figure it out, right? And so, you know, the the brain, is an incredibly, incredibly powerful thing in the the nervous system in general. Now it does, it is so complex that trying to reconnect it when those connections are broken, that's true. That's, that's not, that's, that's hard to do, but that's just not what by, you know, the, in, in, you know, through evolution, if you had a spinal cord injury, you would die and that's okay. You know, there'd be other people there to, to, you know, to continue the, the genetic line. So I think, That was just not the goal right the goal is not the individual the goal is to you know
0: yeah i I guess that's an important point if you if you had an amputation if you had a spinal cord injury you would not have survived um from an evolutionary perspective there was no reason for you to survive and hence there is no design change
1: that's
0: right um but but purely from a from a design perspective it seems highly risky the spinal cord design right if Uh, you bring everything together into a singular sort of a tube going up the going up and to the cpu (laughs) and and you break it and the whole thing comes down Uh, but i guess it it should have some other evolutionary advantages i would imagine
1: well i also want to point out that it's pretty hard to have a spinal cord injury right and like you know you have to have a, a vehicular accident or do something really kind of dangerous you know for that to happen and so, you know, these are things that are now possible, but were not possible even, you know, hundred years ago. So, I, you know, I'm, I, I've never thought about this, but you bring up a good point. That my guess is that spinal cord injuries have become much more prevalent recently. I guess there were horses. Horseback riding is can probably cause, mm-hmm. you know, severe spinal cord injury.
0: Still, from an evolutionary horizon perspective, it's still uh, too too narrow a time frame, right, to have any effect. Yeah, yeah, All right. right. Yeah. So, so I want to go into your latest paper. Um, chronic use of a sensitized bionic hand does not remap the sense of touch. Right. Um, what do you mean by that?
1: Right. So this is this is kind of a. Well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> yep. Let me tell you a story about this. You know, there's this idea that that the that the brain is this very labile plastic thing that, you know, you, you, if you expose it to something, if you expose the brain to something enough, it'll sort of learn it, right. It'll just learn it. And, you know, I, it's been sort of a, um, I think that people overestimate the degree to which that's true. Absolutely. The brain is, is an amazing learning device. And there's certain things that it can learn. And then there's certain things that it can't, right. Like, anyways, I, I can go through a bunch of examples, but the, the, the key one here is about sensory representations. There was this idea that, you know, you lose an arm, so now there's a big part of the brain whose job it was to represent that arm, and now we can just use that to do other things with it, right? And, you know, so, so then I have a, my colleague, uh, Max ortiz Catalan. he's at um, Chalmers University in, in Gothenburg, Sweden, and I was revisiting him six years ago. And the problem is, you know, you implant these electrodes in the nerve, but, you know, the nerve is the nerve and you don't, you know, you just stick these electrodes in the nerve and then you get what you get. So you electrically stimulate and maybe you'll get a sensation for electrode one on, on, on this part of the hand, electrode two on this part of the hand, electrode three on, you know, you have no real, there's no way to know in advance or to surgically target these electrodes to hit specific, you know, fascicles associated with specific parts of the hand. And the problem with that is that, 90% 90% of our interactions with objects happen with the fingertips, right? So you really want to, 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 to hit the fingertips. And so Max had say, well, he knew this, right? He knew this was a problem six years ago. And he was like, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, you know, do my best, you know, get as close as I can. But I'm going to map a, the sensor on this prosthesis to the closest, you know, Nerve fascicle to that, that I can get to the to the thumb and the index to the closest fascicle to the index, etc. And what I expect will happen is the brain is going to learn and remap so that now you know eventually after u- chronic use, touching the the, the 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 thumb will feel will feel like a sensation on the thumb, right? And then six years later, Max happened to be at, in in Chicago. And he was like, I owe you a six pack of beer. I was like, <laughs> that sounds good and I'm all in, but why? <laughs> and it turns out that I had bet him that that would not happen. And, you know, because I don't, that is not the kind of learning that the brain does. You know, when we hit adulthood, there's no reason for these sensory representations to remap. Like we talked earlier, if you're an amputee, you know, and through evolution, evolution would, you know, a biological system, to evolution wouldn't be like well let's repurpose that part of the brain you know most amputees die you know if you lost an arm you would die up until just a few hundred years ago and so there's no there's no kind of evolutionary pressure to kind of create a system that is going to repurpose deafferented parts of the brain so that was my kind of reasoning anyways and i was right six years later max comes and owed me a six-pack because you know there were in the, what, we sh- what he showed in this study is, so there was a sensor on the thumb that elicited sensations, say, on the, on the thinar. And, um, and after two years of seeing the thumb touch things and feeling a sensation on the thinar, the sensation never moved. It just stayed right where it started, right?
0: Yeah, that is, that is really interesting. So, you know, we hear a lot about, like you say, brain plasticity. Its ability yes. to sort of rewire itself, yes, learn things. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like there are two types of learnings, though, right? Um, neuroscientists don't like to use any sort of computer analogies, but um, <laughs> the, there is a difference between sort of software learning, uh, meaning you can pick up a language, you can pick up music, play guitar, to hardware-based uh, learning, and as you say. If the brain sort of specialized to different parts of the body, and in the past, if you lost critical limbs, you're not going to survive. It seems like from an efficiency perspective, they're sort of hardwired uh, without a lot of flexibility. Is that what you're saying? You know, I think
1: I'm I love the computer analogy, but sometimes it breaks down. And I think that's <laughs> the case where it breaks down, right? I think the same kind of learning in principle could happen in both, right? You know, like the, the kinds of learning that you would see in a sensory system that we're talking about might be the same kind of learning that you would need for language, right? In principle, those, the same kind of implementation of learning through rewiring of, of neural connections could happen for both, right? And, but I think that there is different susceptibilities to learning of different parts of the brain. Right? Whereas in these early sensory parts, they're sort of, you know, after you hit, you know, puberty and your body stops growing and changing, those parts of the brain just stop being labile, right? Other parts of the brain, you know, generally, unfortunately for us old guys, at least for us, for me old guys, uh, I will speak for you, you know, our ability to learn is severely diminished, you know, like... Good luck learning a language or learning to play an instrument after the age of, you know, eight, basically ish. You know, I mean, some people ma- manage to, to maintain that ability beyond that, but most people don't. So, we, you know, in fact, learning is somewhat limited, right? You can tweak things, but you can't just start a new thing from scratch that old, you know, <laughs> like that, that there's like that, that door closes uh, during what's called the after the critical period, which happens, you know know, in in teenagehood. But, you know, let me give you an example. Here's a, here's a, here's a a thing that we're working on, but that gives you a sort of a sense of the lack of plasticity. This is, you know, this hasn't, we haven't vetted this completely. So this is kind of hot hot off the, the press kind of result. But so, you know, it might turn out not to, 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 to bear out. But I think, I think this is true. So we, one of the projects we're working on is called the Bionic Breast project. And it's for women who have undergone mastectomy, you know, they scoop out all the tissue, including all the nerves. And so these women end up being completely insensate in their chests, right? So we're working on trying to restore the sensation for women who have undergone mastectomy, but using the same technologies that we've been talking about is that, except, except instead of, you know, Stimulating the nerves that innervate the hand, we want to stimulate the nerve, put a sensor on, an, you know, in the nipple area or area, and then stimulate the nerves that used to innervate the, 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 the chest, uh, the, the intercostal nerves, right? So, you know, in the process of doing that, we want to study breast sensation because we don't know much about it. You know, what are the nerves? What is the, the, the type of, fi- you know, um, tactile nerve fibers that innervate the chest? Very little work has been done on that. So we're doing that work. And in the process of doing that work, we discovered that, you know, the, 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 the brain representation of the, of the breasts is distorted because the breasts develop pretty late in life, right? And, you know, they start growing pretty late in life and therefore the brain, by, by the time the breasts come in, the brain just doesn't really, is not plastic enough to adjust to that different sort of morphology of the chest. And so women, when, you know, this is a subtle effect, it's not like they have a complete, you know, no idea what's going on, but this, the maps of the breasts are, are somewhat distorted. And this effect is, greater for women with larger breasts right so that's just i think another kind of a testament to how the brain just can't keep up with that kind of body change beyond you know puberty
0: how how does it work slim and so when you grow um, the brain has to sort of proportionately adjust your scale right you you you're increasing your height you're increasing your weight Yes. you know you're sort of um, re- redoing your map so to speak mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be programmed in right right so i think
1: you know again i'm not an expert on these issues and i'm not sure to what extent people have studied them carefully but what i what i will tell you is that what is known you know and this is across this is not just for, for touch this is across the entire brain right the the ability to learn new things I mean, young people have, are much more plastic than older people and that, that involves, and there's a variety of ways in which, research true. like, like young people have a lot more in, neural connections and a lot of these neural connections become, are pruned through, through the critical period. So we actually have less neural connections in our brains, right? What you want to do is you just preserve the neural connections that are useful and get rid of the, the, the ones that are not. And that sort of happens in the critical period, and there's other things that I'm not probably, you know, that I don't know about because I'm not a developmental neuroscientist. But one thing is, you know, that I do know is that that during that period, we're much more plastic and much more labile in our representation. Like you said, just sort of adjusting with the fact that our bodies are 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 changing and growing. The distance between our eyes is changing, so that you know the, the visual system has to be able to adjust for that. And then there's one day we grow into adults and the brain you know says okay this is it we're done and that makes sense because imagine if you were really plastic all the time you know i you know if i put my elbow down on this table for two hours i don't want the elbow representation to suddenly become the biggest representation in my brain just because it's so active right you want to have the sensory system being a kind of a ground truth of your body state and once your body stops move, changing, there's re- no reason for those representations to, you know the mapping between the body and the neural representation or the neural you know, activation to change, right? Anyways, I mean thats you know and I don't want to overstate it. You know it can change a bit, but some people thought it was like this magical it's like pixie dust. Just everything could be fixed with, with plasticity, and that's the part that I've been sort of active, actively sort of um, uh, um, working against kind of this this naive view
0: so this, this idea is true for animal models too right so i was i was doing a thought experiment so suppose you have let's say mice models or you know uh, something like that you uh, i don't know if it's possible sleep i'm just uh throwing it out there let's mm-hmm. say you don't feed them you know they're severely malnutritioned
1: okay you, can, uh, you, would, their, never during... you huh? would never do that <laughs> <That's gone>. Yeah. <laughs>
0: If it is possible, as a thought experiment, uh, so during their, you know, sort of the growth period, they they don't actually grow much. Mm -hmm. And then when they are adults, you feed them really Mm -hmm. well. And then suddenly, you know, they they put on it to a higher frame. Uh, Do you think we will see a big difference in the brain?
1: Well, first of all, I just want to point out that that happens to most of us, right?
0: (laughs) In adulthood, we grow a little bit more than, you know,
1: still grow we still continue to grow um you know and i think again it's like the breast idea that the the breast example i gave you earlier right i I, you know no one has done this research but i'm pretty confident that somebody who gains an enormous amount of weight in adulthood right i mean and basically all of us to some degree but the more (laughs) weight you gain the more your 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 you know brain's representation of your body is going to be distorted right it's going to sort of like However, your skin stretches and distorts as you're, you you put on weight. Your brain is not gonna is not gonna follow that. And that would be an interesting kind of a follow up study to do on this breast you know study that, that I mentioned to you. Is that I think that people with that, that gain a lot of weight probably have these slight you know mismatches in their sort of body image uh, in their brain. How how would you measure that? Um right that's a great question so so what with the study what we're doing um uh for the the bionic breast is you you know you blindfold the subject and you touch the breast in two different spots you know along a line like a vertical line right and you ask the subject whether the first touch was above or below the second one right and you know like on the hand you are very good at that you know, but on the breast, there's certain patches of breast where you're very good at that. You know which part, you know the the relative positions of, of that. And then there's little patches where you get it wrong, systematically wrong, right? Where you think this patch is, you know, below this patch, systematically, right? But and that only happens on the breasts. It I mean, I I shouldn't say it only happens on breasts. Of the places we tested, the hand, the back, and the breast, it only happens on breasts and it's more pronounced with women um, uh for women with larger breasts
0: so you could do the same thing with the people who have gained a lot of weight yes same that, that's right. exactly that's right i mean i
1: i didn't have that idea until earlier <laughs> until this conversation but that is definitely a, a thing we could do and maybe a thing we will do i have a lot going on but maybe a thing we will do
0: because it is well, presumably, there's some implications for a sort of therapeutic interventions, right? So, if if you have sort of a distorted map, um, wouldn't you? I mean, supposing you are successful, you know, with a bionic arm and all the things that are happening in that arena, uh, it, it sort of assumes that you have a sort of a precise way to interact with the brain, right? If there is distortions in there, I would imagine you'd be less successful. No, that's that's absolutely true for the hand, right? If every time you touch it, you know, you
1: touch something with your thumb, you feel it on your pinky, that's really bad. And that's going to have a major impact on your ability to interact with stuff. Fortunately, though, the breast, the chest, or the, you know, the belly where, you know, other people might have, uh, you know, adulthood uh growth it doesn't these are very subtle distortions and you know they're more interesting from a scientific standpoint than they are i don't think they have any real implication right because it's not with your breast you're not doing a bunch of complicated stuff <laughs> you know it's like and so and uh, probably and the same thing is true with your be- belly right so i don't i don't actually think this is a, a serious consequence i think this is an interesting consequence of you know the lockdown of sensory representations in adulthood again i just want to point out though remind you that this is somewhat speculative i mean these things about you know and and need to uh, bear further scrutiny
0: yeah so i'm thinking back to your colleague in sweden and the bet that you won yes Um. i won that bet and so it basically says that um you can't really rewire um, when, when you lost it. You have lost it. Uh, it's 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 impossible for the brain to learn sort of a new sequence of things. It, it's sort of counterintuitive uh, without knowing anything about it. Uh, Stephen, I used to think the brain, you know, like you say, it's pretty plastic. So if you if you keep repeating the experiment, you know, it, it, uh, do we know uh, how many times to- so suppose you do it you know you keep repeating the experiment thousand times ten thousand times a million well, times that's the thing though the thing that's beautiful about max's study
1: is that these people went home with this by awning hand and used it for a year or two right every day they used it hundreds of times they interacted with objects and had this sensory mismatch and there was no no rewiring Right? And again, just just to be clear, there is still a full body representation in the in the in the brain there. Right. It's actually that hasn't changed at all. It's it's and the mapping between the nerve and the brain hasn't changed at all. Right. And, and cannot change. So there's nothing wrong with the wiring. It's just that we can only access part of the wire. And we're stuck with that we can, you know we, there's we can't hope that the brain is going to help us along or that the nervous system is going to help us along if we get a palm sensation it's going to stay a palm sensation right and that's unfortunate i mean from this pr- perspective of neuroprosthetics it would be great if you can just stick electrodes and it doesn't matter wh- where the sensations are initially because you can always kind of you know move them to wherever you need them to be especially the fingertips right because again, it is so important. When I grasp this object, I, feel, I, I can feel that my pinky is touching it here, my ring finger is touching it here, my thumb is touching it there, and that is a key you know, contributor to my ability to interact with this object as flexibly and, and dexterously as I can.
0: Could, could you do some sort of a trial and error type thing? So suppose you deploy machine learning type techniques, right? you're, you're picking up a lot of data. Mm -hmm. And what the data is saying is that it's not right. There are errors uh, between what you expect, what you expected, what actually happened. Mm -hmm. That type of data might allow you to sort of incrementally improve it over time, couldn't it?
1: Right. No, that's true. I mean, that is a possibility that we did not test or that Max didn't test, is maybe it's too much to ask the nervous system to go from here to here, right? Maybe what you want Is first move it here, then here, then here, then here, and then gradually. I think that's possible. That's the kind of thing where maybe we can we can. There is some plasticity. You know, we can channel whatever, harness whatever plasticity there is. But you know, the thing we can't do is create maps de novo in adulthood. But we can maybe tweak things, and if we tweak things incrementally, that might work. I mean, that's again totally speculative,
0: right? Yeah it's a, it's an interesting thing because the, the therapeutic approach um, if if you take the hypothesis that the brain is not able to rewire as mm-hmm. as many people seem to hold then the the approaches that you might take for intervention are quite different because you have to mechanically adjust so so you have to basically look for incremental maybe some ai based techniques uh you know, let the machine figure out incrementally what the optimum configuration might be. You take the brain as a given uh, and don't try to train it, but you might be able to train a machine to to incrementally model the brain on the hand. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know, that sounds cool. And AI (laughs) does all kinds of cool stuff. But this is unfortunately not one of those situations. You know, here's on the output side, it might work better, right? You, you have muscles, you know, you have signals from the muscles, the, like for the amputee or, or for the, from the brain for a, a spinal cord injury uh, patient. And then you're using these to infer what the subject is trying to do, right? And that's a place where AI might help, because for instance, like oh, the muscles that control the thumb, a lot of them are in the hand, right? And so, and and they're de- so they're definitely gone after amputation, right? And so maybe you can, you know, use AI to infer more precisely what the intended movement is of the thumb based on what the other muscles are doing. So that's a place where maybe it'll work. But on the sensory side, it will not work, and it will not work because what you have to do is pump into the brain signals that are interpretable. You know, imagine this: we have seventeen thousand nerve fibers that innervate the, the, the palmar surface of the hand, the glabrous surface of the hand. We are, anytime we interact with an object, we're getting this barrage of 17,000 different signals coming all, all at the same time. And we, you know, effortlessly and unknowingly interpret these signals. And we can tell the, te- the shape, the size, the texture of an object its motion across the skin from this incredible amount of, of information that's you know that we're being bombarded with, and that's because the brain you're, you're sending signals that the brain knows how to interpret, right? And that's why I mean you know this is something that we ha- that hasn't come up yet, but that is the guiding principle in this. Is to make this work, we need to be able to speak to speak the language of the brain, and so we need to understand how does the nerve convey information, and if we could replicate exactly what the nerve does we would completely restore touch in all its glory, right? We don't have the technology to do that, but what we try to do is come as close as we can to that. Come as close as we can to, you know, reproducing the signals that would be produced in the the nerve given a specific interaction, right? And that's sort of, this is called the biomimetic approach that guides all our work.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a really difficult, difficult problem yeah, but there is a you know often there is a macro intent, right? Suppose I say I want to pick up this ball to move move it from X to Y. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a human experiment, the human can say that is the macro intent. Yes. Uh, the brain has to take that and then split that into a variety of instructions. Yeah. Uh, and then ultimately convert that into a large amount of electrical signal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if the data is available. In, in sort of a hierarchy in that fashion, wouldn't we be able to sort of um, teach a machine at some point?
1: Yeah, right. So I think there is, it, it, so what we do is kind of you know not work with what you're calling a macro intent, but really work with the low-level signals that are sent to the muscles or that are in the muscles, and then the, the sensory signals that are sent back to the brain at the early stages of processing, right, either in the nerve or in the brain. Um, there's another approach that that consists of you know let's not mess with the muscles let's just figure out what the subject wants to do and have and make the robot do that right not say okay move this this finger and that finger but say hey pick up this object and then just get the robotics to do that for you right and that's you know it's a cool idea the problem with that is that you have it's like it's like almost like a lookup table you need to have you know, in order to to reproduce what hands can do, you need to have like thousands and thousands of potential actions, right? And so that's not in in you know that's not impossible to do, but you have to then be able to 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 you know from these brain signals figure out which of these thousands and thousands of potential actions. The reason why the the approach that we're and 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 for that and one cool thing. So my my colleague Richard Anderson at Caltech really kind of that approach to some degree and there you're actually, instead of interfacing with the motor cortex and the sensory cortex like we do, which are low level kind of areas in the brain, you actually want to in- interact with higher level parts of the brain. Parts of the brain that have goals, like big picture goals, like pick this up or move over here, right? And so what, what I, why I think our approach is more promising, <laughs> you know, ultimately, I mean, look, uh, Just full disclosure, our approach involves the parts of the brain that I am an expert on. And his approach involves parts of the brain that he's an expert on. So, you know, it's like different approaches and, you know, but the advantage of our approach is that it it exploits combinatorial, the combinatorial nature of sort of these low-level representations, right? If you have a thing that controls the thumb, and a thing that controls the index finger. Now you can do all kinds of things with the thumb and the index finger, right? If you're saying, pick up a sphere, pick up a, a block, pick, you know, punch this guy, you know, or whatever other, you know, flip flip this guy off. You know, these are, you know, that's, you really have, those are not combinatorial, right? You just have to have, you know, look up table of these different kinds of actions. And unless we come up with a dictionary of action, and some people are thinking about, are working toward that, I, there's just, it lacks that combinatorics that I think is the advantage of using these low-level representations.
0: Yeah, so, so these low-level signals um, also has some time dimension to it, right? It, it's not, um, there's some delta T um, beyond, you know, the actions, right? So I wondered as those signals come in, uh, suppose, you know, we get uh, computing power continues to increase. Um, we have quantum computing or whatever the case may be. We can, we can look at data at much, much uh, higher levels than we currently do. Uh, it, it, those um, sort of time-wise changes could be learned, right? In, in other words, there should be patterns in that low-level signals. Uh, humans are notoriously predictable. Um, they do things over and over again in the same way. If you if you buy that, then the the low level signal patterns would be repeating. In other words, an AI agent can forecast or predict what the what the human is likely to do at t equal to zero, what, right, what right. is yeah. likely to do at t equal to one, in which case you can you can really remove the latency in those processes.
1: No, I hear what you're saying, and actually there is a very influential um, movement in, in motor neuroscience, uh, primarily motor neuroscience. I mean, it, it, it sort of uh, has, has some impact in other places too, but mostly in motor neuroscience in the, you know, that is the dynamical systems approach, right? Which is, you know, as you said, you know, in, in the nervous system, you know, this is, it's slightly different than what you said, but it's, it has to do with time, right? The brain consists of, you know, these hundred billion neurons that are interconnected. And, and, you know, and, and so the activation of one neuron, each neuron is activated by other neurons. That's, that's the way the brain works, right? And so you have these patterns, these sort of predictable patterns of activity in the brain, right? Where if you activate this neuron, it's going to have a specific, you know, influence or cascade of, of, of activity after that. And, and there are now mathematical approaches that have been developed, you know, dynamical systems analysis and sort of like... You know especially tailored to the brain and to neural systems to try to understand how th- these dynamics of the brain evolve over time just like you said so that you can now look at a given time a period of time and then predict what's going to happen next basically in the in the brain right and um so except that you know i disagree with you know so that's a useful tool to you know to to understand because that constraint, there's a constraint in time. Like whatever is happening at time t makes time t plus one more predictable, right? But we're talking about a hundred billion neurons. Like the, the, the hand, the hand itself, you know, is only one of the many things that we do, but it's definitely the most sophisticated effector out there. The hand itself, you know, operates in at least 30 dimensions, you know? So you're controlling this 30 dimensional end effector And so, even the (laughs) predictability—you know—the predictability is still pretty high-dimensional. It's not predictable enough, I think. I mean, again, I I guess you know the reason I'm saying I'm putting it this way is because there, there was this idea that the hand was actually much more, much simpler. Because if you do principal components analysis on hand movements, you know. 90% of the variance in the hand movement can be explained using six principal components. So then it's like, well, the hand is only six dimensional. But then the last 10% of variance in the hand movements is also super important. It's why we're good at using our hands, you know, otherwise it'd be like a mitten kind of thing, right? So, you know, you can pick things up with a mitten, but you can't play piano with a mitten. And so the idea, so that's why that being said, it's it's, that's why I was kind of phrasing this negatively, but in fact, this idea of dynamics and using the, the, the sort of the predictable aspects of brain activity can constrain our interpret, you know, can constrain the mo- models that map the neural activity to behavior and, and are now being deployed to do that. And, and I think that's a great point.
0: Yeah, I mean, this field is um, really advancing along with uh, computing. And it seems like as we look forward, there are a lot of interesting opportunities. So in conclusion, you know, what, what are you most excited about? If you look forward five years, um, where do you think we will be uh, in, in both of these areas, the spinal cord injury uh, or loss of a limb? In both of those areas, where do you think we will be from a practical um, useful implementation perspective? Right, so let me just say one thing.
1: That hasn't come up yet. That's very important. The the bottleneck is not the computer. I mean, the bottleneck is the neural interfaces themselves. You know, we have neural interfaces that are only you know we have 100 billion neurons in the brain. I mean, we're and we're maybe interfacing with like a hundred or two hundred of them. You know, with these things. So I you know that is just woefully inadequate. Also, actually, it's surprising how well we do. With such a small, you know, a, a sort of a low bandwidth signal, and then the second thing is that they don't, especially the brain ones, don't last. They only last four or five years. You can't ask people to have a craniotomy every five years, and I think that's one of the major problems, is major challenges, is to create interfaces that last, you know, decades for the rest of your life, right? So, so the, the computing is not so much the, the challenges as as is the neural interface. You know, as the neural interfaces improve. Computing may start becoming the bottleneck, and you know, and there are people working toward that. For example, the most famous of which is um, of whom is um, Elon Musk's Neuralink, right? He has this fairly really sophisticated robot to put in a bunch of electrodes in the brain. I mean, and while his you know public statements are a little bit uh, over and, uh, enthusiastic and ambitious, I think that the team of people who are working on it are excellent engineers and neuroscientists, and I think. They're doing some pretty cool stuff. Whether it means the goals or not is is, is you know an open question still. Um, in terms of the neural interfaces, I think the the peripheral nerve ones are getting to the place where they could be clinically viable, you know, for amputees are could be clinical, clinically viable devices soon. For the brain interfaces, for the reason I just told you, it's not clear what the timeline is. But, you know, what I will say, just to plug our work, is, I'm, you know, we're working with the University of Pittsburgh uh, folks to, to create more dexterous prostheses, really look, trying to do a deep dive into how the brain controls a hand. You know, the, the, the prostheses up to now, the brain control prostheses have been good at controlling arms, but not hands, because like I said earlier, hands are really complex and they exert forces on things that are hard to, you know, that are hard to... Measure and and so we are. What excites me is really taking the dexterity thing seriously and to really harness. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by the brain's ability to control a hand and interpret this barrage of signals from the hand. And you know, the proof is in the pudding with bionic hands. You know, you have to understand how that stuff works to make a bionic hand work. And that's what excites me is to try to uh, just improve that aspect.
0: So the brain in the face, quickly on the... So the status quo technology is uh, sort of invasive uh, embedding uh, of electrodes or uh, electronics in the brain, Mm -hmm. right? Are there any approaches that is non-invasive, anything magnetic, anything along those lines? Let me piss off a bunch of people
1: and say, (laughs) no way.
0: (laughs) I just, you know
1: there's all kinds of extracranial approaches out there you know eeg even even the ones that are intracranial but outside the dura like ecog and there the signal that you're picking up you're basically listening in on the aggregate activity of hundreds of neurons thousands of neurons right and it's trying it's like trying to make sense of a, of a thousand conversations based on the waxing and waning of the voices you know and that's all you have and I just don't think there's any way that that's ever going to be good enough. you know. And I think ultimately these invasive technologies are going to be the way to go. And you know what? I got my PhD in psychology. You know what I mean? I did not do a single, I did not do a neurophysiological experiment until my postdoc at Hopkins. And yet I can do these surgeries myself and I've never killed, And they won't let me do them on humans, but I do them on monkeys. I've never killed a monkey during the surgery. All these monkeys uh, have been completely fine afterwards. And if I can do it, you know, professional neurosurgeons can do it too, right? And so this is a, you know, it sounds worse than it is. And if it worked really well, people would, you know, now let me say some crazy stuff to end this, this thing, you can cut it out if you think it's too crazy. But as these interfaces, you know, we're reading signals out for up from the brain, we're writing signals back into the brain through electrical stimulation. As these technologies improve, they can go beyond rehabilitation. I mean, what I work on is rehabilitation for amputees and spinal cord injury patients, right? But once you can do that really effectively, you can start really interacting with extracorporeal devices with the same flexibility that we can interact with our own muscles and our own senses this really kind of opens a whole realm you know of possibilities you know imagine for example this is my favorite one this is the one i wish i had right and i'm not going to have it in my lifetime but maybe you know my grandchildren if you could interact with the whole of human knowledge with the same flexibility that you can interact with your own kind of semantic knowledge base you know (laughs) you could that was part of your knowledge you would become an altogether different organism right and that's the kind of thing that we can dream about you know if you think about how fast technology and science is evolving now you know that's the kind of thing that we can dream about in you know a century or something and that's sort of we're taking the first step towards that
0: yeah i mean brain enhancement that would be sort of the natural progression but that i guess along with that comes a bunch of ethical and oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, complications but oh, yeah uh, it's total it's a total mess a, a
1: total mess but you know what the thing though is and we think about this and we have meetings about this, you know, like, okay, what, what do we need to be, you know, vigilant about? Um, but you can, you know, we just need to be prepared because, you know, like, going to happen, no yeah. amount of, no, we're not gonna say, okay, oh, this is dangerous, let's stop, right? We're every, this is gonna march on. And what we need to do is be prepared to face the ethical challenges that are looming. And, and there, there are some, you know, like, here's the classic one, right? The classic one is as you start in, enhancing or you know, augmenting yourself with hardware, is there a point where you stop being a human being and stop being, start being something altogether different? And, you know, probably, <laughs> but is that a bad thing? You know, I don't know.
0: And then you can be hacked. You know, right now, our computers can impact impact. and then
1: our brains yeah. can character. Yeah, That is a thing that, you
0: know, there's like a thing about the Elon Musk
1: thing that I don't get is that he's building these devices, these implantable devices to interact with devices to fight off the singularity. But it seems like if you had a you no know, malevolent AI, the last thing you want is for it to be able to hack your brain directly. Anyways.
0: I agree. I think, um, yeah, even AI area, people are just too optimistic. And we have always been; humans have always been too optimistic about when things are going to happen. It will happen, but it's going to take ten x number of years uh, than we typically forecast. I think.
1: I'll take your word but, for it. Uh, I don't know. I think that, there's a lot of variation on on opinions on that point. Some people think it's like are terrified <laughs> because it's looming, and not just you know people off the street, but actual AI people. And other people are like, like you, like, this is ridiculous. There's nothing to worry about.
0: Excellent. Yeah, this is a great area. Um, great area for emerging students to get into, right? Graduate students. Uh, so the, so where does this sit at uh, University of Chicago? Um, you say biology and anatomy. So what is the department that this uh, this area sits in?
1: Oh yeah, right. Well, so I am in the Department of Organismal Biology and Anatomy. I, as you may or may not know, I, I saw that you had one of my colleagues from UChicago last, you know, in your last podcast. But you know, the UChicago, um, like for instance, neuroscience is distributed over a bunch of different departments. So we have some neuroscientists in the Department of Neuroscience. Actually, it's the Department of Neurobiology, but we have some neuroscientists in statistics and physics and several of them are in my department, the Department of Organismal Biology and Anatomy, which is a, a, a biology department that is really kind of, you know it's called, I didn't know what organismal biology was until, until I joined the department, but it's, it's a department that really focuses on kind of organismal level questions. So I studied the, the entire sensory system and its interaction with the motor system, for example, right? Uh, and my colleague, Nico Hutzopoulos is an expert on the motor system, uh, Dan is an expert on the auditory system, Etc.
0: Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Stephen. Thanks so much for yeah, studying. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to. Info at scientificsense.com.